Let me pray before we open up the Word here this morning. Father, uh, Lord, may we come to Your Word with joy in our hearts. Joy in our hearts because Your Word is faithful and true, because we will watch as the grass withers and the flower fades, but we will see forevermore that your, your Word stands true and everlasting. It does not fade. It does not diminish. And Lord, as we live in the midst of a world that says a lot of different things go in a lot of different directions, God, may we be a people who takes you at your Word today, tomorrow, Lord, and until you take us home, May we take you at your word. So, Lord, may our hearts be open. May our eyes be open. You speak to us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Church family, what do you do? <clears throat> whether, it's, whether it's what you watch and see in the news on an international or a national level or whether it's more on a personal level, whether you find yourself in a situation at school or you find yourself in a situation at work, what do you do? When you see brokenness and sin celebrated around you, when you see injustice honored and um, celebrated and encouraged, and you as a follower of Christ, as a righteous one, having been made righteous with been made righteous in Christ, what do you do when you cry out in prayer? And God seems silent and inactive. What do you do? How do you handle this situation? Because the reality is, church family, that you and I live in a time when if you do turn on the news and you see things on an international level, brokenness, wickedness, evil, sinfulness, it abounds. We live in a time when you look around our own country and we celebrate just decisions being made in courts this week, yet at the same time, not even inside of churches throughout this country can we agree that it's something to be celebrated. What, what do you do? What do you do when you cry out and you're asking God for, for justice, for movement, to stir, to bring revival, yet it seems as if God is silent. It seems as if wickedness abounds. We're left with questions. Where is God in all of this? What is He doing? And, and how are we supposed to respond to this? And church family, it's in light of this, in light of this question that we're not the first to struggle with, and we're certainly not going to be the last to struggle with because we live in a broken world. It's in light of this that we're going to spend a couple weeks uh, and if you thought Jonah was obscure and you've never heard a sermon series through Jonah, well, we're going to go a little bit more obscure. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, and some of you are going, where on earth is Habakkuk? It is in there. It's not, I'm not tricking you, asking you to turn to third Hezekiah. <clears throat> it's in there. So either, either, you know, go to Jonah, if you got that marked, and go to the right a couple books, or go to Matthew and go to the left a couple books, and you will find in between, or right before Nahum, and, or right after Nahum, and right before Zephaniah, you will find Habakkuk. Now, let me kind of connect the dots for us as we come to Habakkuk. When you look at the story of the people of Israel, uh, and we know King Saul, King David, King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel splits in two. 
splits in two, and ten of the tribes, plus part of the tribe of Levi, they form the northern kingdom that's called Israel, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and they are in the northern half. Judah, the Messianic tribe, and Benjamin, as well as the Levites living in the south, form the southern kingdom that's most, from that point forward, called Judah. Now, we, we just finished going through uh, Jonah, and we, we watched as God calls Jonah in the mid-700s B.C., in the mid-8th century B.C., to go to Nineveh, this wicked and cruel people, and to proclaim a message of repentance. And we see Nineveh respond. Fast forward 30 to 40 years after Jonah goes to Nineveh, in 722 B.C., the, the Nineveh is is part of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire has regained strength and power, and God uses them. In 722, they come in and they attack the northern kingdom of Israel and absolutely destroy it as a result of the, the kingdom of Israel's refusal to ever repent and return to God. They destroy it, and they take, and when they destroy it, they take the ten tribes and, and they just scatter them all over. And to this day, we call those the, the ten lost tribes. Judah continues to endure, however. And as Judah endures, a king will come up by the name of Manasseh, who is the most wicked king of all of Israel's rulers to that point. Uh, wickedness to the, to, to the level that he brings pagan worship, pagan idolatry. He, he thoroughly leads the people in it. He even, even commits child sacrifice for one of his own children. And it's in that time in the king of Manasseh, you've got, you've got God's prophets like Jeremiah proclaiming, and, and in that time, God determines that the people of Judah have crossed the line so far that, that, that a form of discipline and, and destruction and exile is what's needed to turn their hearts back. Manasseh will die uh, through a circus series of events. His grandson, Josiah, comes to the throne, and Josiah is probably the godliest king since King David. And he begins to lead the nation in, in revival and reform, and he casts out the pagan worship, and he casts out the idols and tears down the altars. And then they find the book of the law in the temple, and they begin to restore the festivals and bring worship back to the temple. And in this season in Judah, there is a sense of revival. People are returning to the Lord, and as people return to the Lord and justice is honored in society, there is peace and there is prosperity. And God promises Josiah that he will not bring the discipline in Josiah's day. And Habakkuk would have grown up in this day. But then on the international scene, things begin to change and move. Assyria's powers weakening. Babylon is attacking Assyria, and Egypt decides to go up and help Assyria. And Josiah seeks to intervene, and Josiah, in trying to intervene and, and stop what seems to be a bad thing for the people of Judah, goes and fights Egypt and will die in battle by the town of Megiddo, where you can still go to this day. A righteous king killed in an unrighteous way. And eventually, through a series of circumstances, one of his sons, Jehoiakim, is placed on the throne as he begins to pay tribute to Egypt for protection, and the cycle of wickedness and injustice returns. And it's at this time that Habakkuk, 
the prophet writes to us and says this. Look with me, Habakkuk 1, verse 1. The oracle, or, or quite literally, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet saw, how long, O Lord, will I cry for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me to see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, because of this, the law is ignored, or quite literally, the law is made cold. It grows numb. The law is paralyzed, and justice is never upheld. It doesn't go forth to fight for right, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted or confused, crazy, bent, broken. Here's what Habakkuk cries out. He says, Lord, where are you? Lord, I am watching the people around me. I am watching as wickedness is ruling. I mean, look at the language that he uses. Iniquity, sin, injustice, wickedness, trouble and harm, destruction, violent action that devastates, strife, quarreling, like in brawling, heated, violent discussions. And all of, all of these actions have led to a place where the law is paralyzed. Justice no longer comes. God's word and his righteousness are no longer honored. And Lord, I am crying. I have been crying out to you to intervene. You who are just, God, to, to come in and act. And how long will I cry out with fervor, yet you do not respond? And understand, the situation that Habakkuk finds himself in is... Jehoiakim steps to the throne. He will have seen the death of a righteous king in an unrighteous way. He will see a wicked ruler come on to the scene once again in his nation. It says of Jehoiakim that he leads the people to walk in all of the sins of their fathers, which means pagan worship. Fathers includes Manasseh, child sacrifice, worship of false gods, defrauding workers' proper pay, holding slaves, ignoring the sacrifices and festivals of God, murder, in fact, Jehoiakim himself is described in 2 Kings 24 as one who is a tyrant shedding the blood of the innocent. Jeremiah describes him in Jeremiah 22 as an unjust and brutal despot whose only aim in life was his own greatness. Rabbinical literature describes him as a godless tyrant who willingly, who, who with celebration committed atrocious sins and crimes. He's linked to all sorts of immoral relationships with his female relatives. He was one who would go and cold-blooded murder men, and then after murdering them, take their wives, violate them, and seize all their property and ruin their children. He is a wicked king. In fact, he is the only king recorded in Scripture who put the prophets to death. Doesn't mean he's the only king who did it, but he's the only king recorded as having put prophets to death. The wickedness that was abounding around Habakkuk as, as he's seen what revival can look like and now wickedness is ruling. You can imagine the fervor. God, where are you? Why are you not responding? I know this doesn't please you. What, what is happening? Where are you? This is Habakkuk's question. Look at God's answer. God responds, verse 5, look among the nations, observe, pay close attention to, be astonished, wonder. All of these are commands, plural commands, by the way, because it wasn't just for Habakkuk the prophet to look and see, but for all the people to look and see. 
Look, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. Habakkuk, you feel I am silent, but I am working. I am doing something in your days, in your lifetime. You would not believe it if you were told. In fact, what I'm doing, Habakkuk, I'm not just aimlessly letting things pass by. I see the wickedness. It grieves my heart, and I am taking action. But if you hear what I'm doing, it's going to blow your mind. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Or to you and I, we commonly know the Chaldeans as, I am raising up Babylon, the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress, and they heap up rubble to capture it. This is a reference to how they would come in, and you would think your city's safe because of the high walls, and what Babylon would do is they would just start heaping piles upon piles of stuff until they built a ramp that went over the walls. That's what it's a reference to there. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty whose strength is their God. Here's what God says. He goes, Habakkuk, I, I by no means have been, have been blind, have by no means been doing nothing. In fact, the work I've been doing, it would blow your mind if you see it. And here's what's going on. I have been raising up. I have allowed the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to prosper in their conquering. And he describes, listen, I mean, you hear the words he describes the, the Chaldeans with, fierce, impetuous. They march throughout the earth. They seize what's not theirs. They're dreaded and feared. Their justice, their view of authority, it originates with themselves. They come in fast and bring destruction. They seek violence. They collect captives. They mock kings. In fact, this is seen when Babylon will ultimately conquer Judah for the final time. They will take Judah's king at that time. And this shows you how wicked, how, how much disdain they hold for rulers. They will take the king at that time, line up his sons, kill all of them in front of the king, then pluck the king's eyes out so the last thing he'll ever see in his life is his sons dying. And they took them off to Babylon and dealt with them there. These are a wicked and brutal people, which causes Habakkuk to, to bring another question. Look with me at verse 12. If the first question is, God, where are you? The, the new question is now, God, how can you? Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So catch what he's saying. Lord, wait a minute. You're the everlasting God, the one without beginning and without end. Oh, Lord, my God, you're the personal God, the one true God. You're, you're the God who reveals his name, and, and you're my God, and I'm your people. You're holy. 
You're unique, you're distinct, you're set apart, you're perfectly righteous and, and moral. You owe rock, referencing one who is firm, who is a stronghold, a refuge, established, unmovable. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You're one God who you don't look upon evil with, okay, evil is not, you're not a utilitarian God who sees evil as a means to an end. So he states this reality of God's character to say this, why then do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Here's what Habakkuk asks. God, how can you? This, this is who you are. And these people, the Babylonians, how can you allow them to have favor because they're treacherous? How can you seem silent when in their wickedness they're swallowing up those more righteous? God, we're, we're certainly messed up here in Judah. We've got issues. We don't honor you. We need something to happen. But Babylon, they're even worse. And he speaks about we're like, you've made us like fish in the sea, meaning we're, we're helpless creatures unable to escape the net. And Babylon comes in with their nets. They catch whoever they seek to catch. They do it with their own power and strength, which is why they offer sacrifice and offerings to their own nets. It's a reference to the fact that they are God in their own eyes. How long will they slay nations without sparing? Habakkuk is struggling deeply. God, where are you? I don't see you intervening in the wickedness in my country. God answers and said, oh, I'm out of work. I'm about to bring Babylon to come in and bring discipline and correction and reproof to Judah. And he goes, wait a minute, but Babylon, God, you who are holy, you who are good, how can you use Babylon of all people? And he asks this question, but then he takes this resolution. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand on my guard post. I will station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what God will speak to me, how I may reply when I am reproved. Here's the position he takes as he asks these hard questions weighing down on his soul. He doesn't say, I'm going to go talk with all the other prophets. He doesn't say, I'm going to go read and pick up and see what all the, other, all the other people are shooting out on the blogosphere and Twitter. No, what he says is, I'm going to go take the watch post. I'm going to go and I'm going to firmly plant myself. I will be unmovable, and I will wait. I will ask the question of the Lord, and I will wait, and I will look, and I will see, and I will be focused on hearing His answer, which comes in verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision. Inscribe it, meaning make it written clearly and legible on tablets, that the one who reads it may run meaning that the one who's running by could read it clearly and then in continue running, take out the message to those who need to hear it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. He says, he says Habakkuk, the, the, the answer I've shown you of Babylon coming, you need to be clear, people need to understand what's going on. There's an appointed time. 
It's coming quickly. It will not fail. Don't, don't fall into the trap because you had false prophets who even as Jeremiah would proclaim and would proclaim that God was going to use Babylon to come in and correct Judah, you also had an abundance, in fact, far more false prophets than true prophets, saying, oh, don't listen to them. They're full of beans. They don't know what they're talking about. See, they're not coming. Look how long we've been safe. And God's saying, don't, don't mistake the time gap. Though it tarries, wait for it. It's coming at the appointed time. Then God says this, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous one will live by his faith. So here he answers. And it's interesting in God's answer to Habakkuk, God doesn't necessarily lay out all of the answer to this question of, of God, how can you who are holy, you who are pure, you who abhor evil, how can you use and work your plan through those who are evil and sinful? And God doesn't necessarily come down and give all the answer. What he does say is he says, Habakkuk, I want you to write this down. I want you to write it down for everybody to know and hear and see. I want you to understand that what I've shown you, even though it seems like it's tearing, even though there'd be likely when this is given, there's going to be another... There's going to be another um, three different waves of Babylon attack that take place over the next about 20 years. It says, even though it tarries, you wait for it. My word is good and true. But this is what you must do, Habakkuk. The one who is proud, the one who trusts in himself, the one who trusts in his strength, something is off in the soul. But my righteous one, in the midst of all these questions, in the midst of what's going on around, my righteous one will live by faith. God assures Habakkuk that he is in fact at work, church family. He is going to deal with Judah's wickedness. And by the way, he even says in here, even though Babylon will be used, Babylon won't escape unpunished. Did you catch that in chapter 1, verse 11? But they will be held guilty whose strength is their God. You see it again in verse 4, the proud one, his soul's not right within him. Even in verse 5, verse 5 transitions us to where we're going next week, but verse 5 speaks of the haughty man and how the haughty man is betrayed by his own appetite and falls. God assures Habakkuk, I am working. Judah's wickedness will be dealt with and corrected. Babylon's will not be left unpunished. But in the midst of, in the midst of everything going on, he calls Habakkuk to walk in faith and faithfulness. And church family, listen, today you and I sit here, if you are in fact in Christ, we sit here as God's righteous ones because of Christ. And we sit as God's righteous ones facing the real anguish of a real broken world. And today the call to you and I is to live and to walk by faith and in faithfulness to live and to walk by faith and in faithfulness. Listen, church family, today you and I sit as God's righteous ones. What do I mean by that? If you are in this room and you have responded to Jesus Christ's offer of salvation, the fact that Jesus came, he lived, he moved, he breathed, and when he went on that Christ and died, cross and died, it says in 2 Corinthians, he became our sin. He became our sin. All of the sin and brokenness which separates you and I from God, he became, he took on. It says elsewhere in Scripture that he bore, the, he, he did that as the propitiation. He bore the, the, the wrath. 
He paid the sacrifice. He paid the price. That, according to 2 Corinthians, you and I might become the righteousness of God in Christ. If you and I have responded, if if you've responded to Christ's offer of salvation in faith, then God has declared you righteous. You are in line. You measure up not because of your worth or my worth, but because of Christ's worth. You and I sit at his table and are able to look him in the eyes, not because of the chair we built, but because we sit on Christ. And if you're in this room today and you go, I, I, I've, I've, not, I've not responded, I'm, I'm not righteous, I know very much I'm unrighteous, and I, can I just tell you, friend, whether you're in here or watching online today, today can be the day where you are made righteous. You just must respond in faith to Christ Jesus. But for those of us who have, we are God's righteous ones. We are in right standing with God. We have been transformed by his blood. And by the way, this verse in chapter, in, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, but the righteous one will live by faith, it is a major verse in the New Testament referencing the fact that the only possible way a person can be made right with God is through a response of faith. Amen. It's quoted in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And church family, as God's righteous ones in Christ, as God's people, you and I face real anguish in a broken world. We face real anguish in a broken world. There is a reality of a broken world that Scripture never, never goes past. Habakkuk is a man struggling because he looks around him and he sees nothing but wickedness and injustice in his own people. And then when God directs his eyes bigger out to the rest of the world, he sees even worse. And what does that lead inside of him? There is an anguish that he feels. I have been crying out. How long, O Lord, will I cry out? And church family, listen. You and I must be careful as God's righteous ones living in a broken world. We must be careful. And this is a side note, not the main point. But we must be careful that we do not write off the anguish we should feel living in a broken world. Okay? You've got, and I'm not, what I'm not implying is you need to live all of your life checking every news source, constantly feeling overwhelmed and weighed down by all the craziness of the world. That's not what I'm saying. Otherwise, you and I will never be faithful with what we're supposed to be faithful with. What I am saying is because our world is so rough, whether it's on a national, international, or whether it's just in your own personal life. Listen, you and I can live through things, whether it's as a student in school, whether it's, whether it's as a, a young adult seeking to follow Christ, but being inundated on social media with all sorts of false truth and working with coworkers who have no sense of love for Christ, and there is a loneliness there. It can be as you work at your job and a new boss comes in who, who rewards everything that Scripture says is wrong. It can come out in personal levels, and it can be overwhelming. And I fear that sometimes, maybe it's just me who does this, there can be a temptation to take all of the other options we have in life to distract ourselves from the reality of the injustice and wickedness swirling around us. And church family, we cannot allow ourselves to be distracted because Scripture does call for us as the people of God to pray for God to move in His justice. 
And oftentimes I wonder if some of the things we see of wickedness and injustice where it seems God is not moving, perhaps it's because we as His people so distract ourselves with other things so we don't feel that burden that we're not crying out asking God to move. We must not write off the anguish. We must not distract ourselves. But what we must do is we must live by faith. We must live by faith. What do we mean by faith? It says the righteous one will live by faith in the midst of this real broken world where there is real animosity, where there is real hardship. We must live by faith. What do we mean? Well, what we don't mean is we must live by good, wishful, positive thinking. What we don't mean is, wow, the world's terrible, but tomorrow will be better. No, tomorrow may not be better. What we don't mean is pithy little sayings that turn things off. What we do mean by faith is that confident trust that completely and totally places the full weight of our being and strength on that which is true always, though unseen. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. It's not putting my leg out, hoping there will be something to catch me. It's not seeing anything to catch me, knowing God said walk forward and just trucking forward in confidence because if God said it, then it's true and there must be a way. We walk by faith, confident in who He is, confident in what He says. We walk by faith and not by fear. We walk by faith and not by wishful thinking. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by whatever our feelings lead us to. This was one of the most pivotal verses where the book of Hebrews quotes it in chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. When I, as a freshman in high school, had given up and repented of these various idols and really given up things that were of incredible value to my life at that point, true sacrifices. I gave up sports, gave up athletics, gave up extracurriculars because of what God had showed me and what God had called me to do that year. And I began to seek God and push in with an earnestness and a fervency. And the more I sought the Lord, the more silent and distant He felt. The more reading my Bible felt like sandpaper. And I will never forget, after months of crying out, being on a mission trip in, in Steyr, Austria, sitting in the bed, opening up my Bible and coming to that verse in Hebrews, my righteous one will live by faith. And hearing the Lord just quietly affirm and whisper, Wes, you've got to trust who I am at what I say. Because there is no way to walk with God. There's no way to be saved apart from faith. There's no way to walk with God apart from faith. And what's interesting about this word, faith here, it's an interesting word in the Hebrew. Because in the Hebrew, the idea is an inner resting, an inner belief that then manifests in faithfulness outwardly to God. It's a way of acting that comes out of inner stability. It's an inner attitude that produces certain conduct characterized by genuineness, reliability, sincerity, stability. So what we mean is when we say faith here, it's, it's you and I resting in assurance on who He is in His Word, which is then what produces faithfulness in our lives. It plays both sides. And God's call to Habakkuk is Habakkuk as you struggle with these real questions. Do you notice, by the way, church family, God doesn't rebuke Habakkuk for his questions. 
He doesn't rebuke Habakkuk for struggling with these hard questions. God, where are you? God, how can this be? But he does call Habakkuk to trust who he is and entrusting who he is to in the midst of a world that will pressure you to capitulate every direction to remain faithful. But our ability, church family, to remain faithful is directly tied to how to how we are actively faithing who He is and what He says. If you and I don't trust, if you and I allow doubts to consume, it will be hard to be faithful. We must walk by faith. And this passage gives us some, some very tangible ways to walk by faith. One is by seeking God fervently. Do you notice the direction of Habakkuk in the passage? Habakkuk does not face these hard questions and then go, mm, maybe I won't ask God about that. No, what is Habakkuk's direction? I am facing these questions. Lord, how long must I cry out? Lord, I'm not moving from the watch post until you answer. Habakkuk goes to the Lord with the hard questions. And church family, here's the reality. If you live in this world for much time at all and you truly seek to follow Christ, you're going to have hard questions as you face tragic situations. There are going to be times when you and I face moments where God seems silent and distant. Habakkuk faced it. Habakkuk's not the first. Job felt that way. Jeremiah felt that way. David wrote a psalm that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry out by day, but you are not there. I cry out by night, and you do not reply. Why are you so far from the words of my groanings? Interestingly enough, a psalm that was repeated by Christ on the cross There's many in Scripture who, as they have faced hardship in the reality of wickedness, who have felt as if God is silent. Yet that same psalm says, Yet you, O Lord, are holy, O you who are enthroned on the praises of your people, and you, our fathers, trusted and were delivered. The reality is there's going to be times where God seems silent, but what we notice in Habakkuk is he doesn't go talk about God to others. He goes to God and he seeks answers. And church family, if you and I are going to walk by faith, it must manifest itself in seeking God fervently, even in the midst of the brokenness around us. Because here's the reality. God sees. God hears. God knows There was nothing that happened to Job or Habakkuk or David or Jeremiah or Daniel. There was nothing that happened that God was not keenly aware of and not keenly present for in church family because you and I are the righteous ones of God in Christ where the Holy Spirit, God himself, indwells us. There's not anything you and I face that he is not quite literally with us in. So we seek him fervently. We patiently wait his answers and his actions. Do you, do you notice that there, chapter 2, verse 1? I will stand on my guard post. I will station myself. I will keep watch. Church family, in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of the anguish we feel, we must be careful not to speculate, but to patiently wait for the Lord's actual reply. It's natural for us to grow impatient. We want God's answer now. We want the answer to the hard questions now, but the question for you and I are, are we willing in asking God the hard questions? Are we willing to plant our knees firmly on the ground and wait until He replies? It seems so often we're quick to post our understanding and our speculation and interpretation of current events or to go out and buy the latest book from our favorite author and speaker and preacher about how to understand what's going on. And this isn't anything new. It's happened all throughout church history. 
Yet God tells Habakkuk, look, if I tell you what I've been up to, it's going to blow your mind. Which means most likely any of Habakkuk's speculations wouldn't have measured up. Why? Because God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. But they are higher. And what's it going to mean to wait patiently, church family? It's going to mean getting on our knees, being people of prayer. It's going to mean as you face that hard situation where wicked seems to, wickedness seems to swirl around you, it's going to mean pressing in and seeking hard in His Word. Which, by the way, Habakkuk didn't have a whole written copy of God's Word, the full revelation of God to man. Nor did Habakkuk have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside, reminding him of God's Word. Church family, you and I have access to resources Habakkuk could have only dreamed of. In the midst of anguish, we wait for his reply. In the midst of anguish, we wait for his action. Understand, church family, today, God is working from eternity for eternity. Amen. He is not in a rush. All throughout Scripture, stories show where, where God carries out his plan over long periods of time. Abraham promised at 75, child not till 100. Moses at 40, thinking God's going to use him to lead deliverance, not till 80. David Anointed king as a teenager not become, doesn't become king till 30. All throughout there is a pattern. God says, I am not slow as some count slowness. But all throughout Scripture, he reveals himself as patient and steadfast. Seeking that people would respond to him, understand church family, we must wait for his action because God is at work. And church family, if we're going to walk in faith, we're going to do it knowing He is at work. We must not doubt God's faithfulness because He is actively at work fulfilling His eternal plan of redemption. Judah is, is being disciplined because God has an actual plan of what He's going to do through the people and specifically the tribe of Judah. It's not accident. It's not cruelty. It's because there's an actual plan. God is working out, church family, in our lives, His sanctification. He's working out His salvation. In our world, He's working out His plan of redemption. He is preparing for His kingdom to come in full at Christ's appointed return that no one can deny. The question is, are you and I aware of what God is actually working for? He's not working for our peace, prosperity, and our own little kingdom to last on this world perpetually. He's working for the purposes of His glory and His kingdom. And if we're not careful to in faith, wait for his answers and wait for his action, then we're going to miss what he's actually at work. And this is mind-blowing too because even with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, these wicked people that God says, I, trust me, they're going to get theirs. And by the way, they did. Persia wiped them out. If you read the book of Daniel, you watch all sorts of interactions that God had with King Nebuchadnezzar trying to help Nebuchadnezzar see the truth that he is the one true God. Just like we saw in Jonah. He is at work. He is sovereign. He is in control. History is not some cyclical uh, cycle of things repeating themselves. It's linear. It has a beginning, and God is moving it to His appointed and victorious end. But here's the hard truth, church family. The hard truth is that God does, in fact, work holy, righteous. He never approves of evil. He does not tempt any man according to James, but the reality is God does work through the sinful actions of man. This is a sinful and broken world. 
Because God is sovereign, sinfulness doesn't stifle his plan. In fact, he will take sinful actions and use them and turn them around and redeem them for his plan. We see Joseph's brothers. God doesn't approve of them selling Joseph into slavery. They sold him into slavery, but God used it to bring deliverance to his people. Pharaoh's the one who hardened his heart the first six plagues, not God. But God used it to showcase his glory to the Egyptians and bring his people out. The, the epitome of this is Peter's sermon on, on Pentecost Sunday where he looks at the Jews and he says, you killed Jesus who died according to God's plan. Our God is a God who takes the sinful actions of humanity. He never condones it. His eyes are too pure. But he takes the sinful actions of humanity and uses them inside of his plan. And this is a hard truth at times, church family. And it's, not, and it's a truth that the reality is in every situation it will be unique and, and, and God does not always peel back the curtain this side of heaven and let us see all the little ways in which it works out. As one, one writer wrote, such a word from God implies that the turmoil and violence and death in our societies may not be evidence of God's absence from our lives, but instead the witness to his actually, actual working and judgment as he pursues his purpose. God is always at work, always involved, always pressing forward to his kingdom. The means by which he chooses to pursue the goal may be as, as astounding as the destruction of, the, of a nation or as incomprehensible as the blood dripping from the sun on the cross. We got to know he's at work. And lastly, church family, we, we walk in faith by knowing that God's character is sure. Even Habakkuk states his character, you are everlasting, you are, you are the Lord my God, personal, you are holy, you have appointed them to judge, you are sovereign, your eyes are too pure, we must not forget that God is holy, he is everlasting, he is a rock, we must not forget that he is holy and righteous, he will bring discipline and justice, we must not forget that he is merciful and great is his faithfulness, we must not forget that he is gracious and compassionate, abounding in loving kindness forgiving the one who repents, but also bringing justice on iniquity and sin. Church family, even in the moments where the world is dark and wickedness surrounds, if we are going to walk in faith and thus be able to walk in faithfulness with God, we must be sure, we must know that God's character does not change. The God that we encountered on the mountaintop in all glory is the same God in the midst of the valleys when we're surrounded by evil. We must be confident of this. Paul was confident of this. That's why he said in 2 Timothy at the very end, he said, I stood in trial, and Timothy, no one stood with me, but Jesus stood with me. And I know the end of my life is coming. And he makes this statement, and he says, and he, referring to God, will deliver me out of the lion's mouth and bring me safely home because not even the greatest power that you and I as humans cannot conquer death can stop God from accomplishing his work so church family we live in a rough world could get better could get worse we're going to have hard questions but the question 
in front of you and I today as we watch events unfolding around us, whether it's on the news or whether it's as personal as in our lives. Will we walk by faith? Knowing that he's at work, knowing that his character is sure, seeking him fervently, waiting patiently for his answers and actions. Oh, that we would be people who do. Let's pray. Father, God, the reality is there are going to be many times that if we're honest, we're going to be touched by the sinfulness of this world. It's going to hurt. It's going to grieve us. It's going to be painful. There's going to be moments in the midst of that where it seems like you're silent and we ask the same questions. God, what are you doing? How can you possibly allow that? And Lord, I praise you that you don't even, those questions don't shock you. They don't surprise you. You didn't exclude them from your word. There's an entire book of Scripture that's centered around the ans- your answers to those questions. And so, Father, may we not be people who allow those questions to wreck us, who in our impatience choose to go off and in pride take answers from the ways of the world, but may we be people who ground ourselves on our knees, who stand in our watch post, who cry out to you fervently, passionately seeking you, who wait for your answers. And God, as we hear your answers, as we read your word, as we see clearly who you are and what you're up to, who would then proclaim it loudly. Lord, you are at work. And you don't call us to know what all you're up to in your work, but you do call us to trust you and in trusting you to walk out your character in this world. May you find us as a church, each and every one of us in this body, to be men and women of faith who walk with you faithfully. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.